An important part of the targeted therapy armamentarium in renal cell cancer is the use of mTOR inhibitors, particularly temsorolinus. And I met with Dr. Janet Dutcher, who commented on the key data set leading to approval of this agent. In 2006, the study of temsorolimus versus interferon versus the combination was presented at ASCO. And the study was done in what we call poor-risk renal cell patients, which, you know, most people don't really bother to categorize. But what that means, people that have poor-risk features based on some criteria that were presented from Sloan Kettering of nephrectomy, no nephrectomy, high LDH, anemia, hypercalcemia, rapid time frame from primary to secondary to metastatic disease, multiple metastatic sites, things that made the disease look like it was going to progress rapidly. And that study showed that there was a significant improvement in both progression-free and overall survival with temsorolimus compared to interferon. And what that suggests is that in those poor-risk patients, the immunotherapies can't really catch up to the disease process, whereas something that has a different pathway may well do that. Additionally, just to comment, in the phase two study that had preceded this, where the suggestion of benefit in poor-risk patients was observed, there was also benefit in intermediate risk. But the selection of the poor-risk group was really just to say, look, let's take the bad actors and see if we can make a big difference. So it was sort of an artificial separation. But at any rate, it did show a difference. And then when we went back and looked at the data, and I was part of that study, there were a significant number of patients that were not strict clear cell. They were either clear cell mixed with something else, or they were completely different histologies, like papillary mostly, or really undifferentiated. And in those patients, the difference in terms of the benefit from temsorolimus was significantly more than with interferon and actually a little better than even the clear cell. And as I said, reflects the fact that we don't think that immunotherapy is as good in the non-clear cell patients. So that data was presented at ASCO in 2007, and there will be some updates of that information at GU ASCO in 2008. The caveat is that the histological differences were what were recorded on the case report forms. There was not central pathology review, nor will there be. So it's whatever the institution's pathologist called the pathology. But, you know, I have looked, I'm not a trained pathologist, but, you know, I can see the difference between papillary and clear cell. So I think, you know, it's fairly accurate, but people have to understand that there was not central pathology review. What about in your own clinical practice? Have you had patients with, for example, papillary where you clearly saw a response, symptom improvement, objective response with temsorolinus in a non-clear cell? Yes, I have. I have also seen response with serafinib and with sunitinib in non-clear cell patients. What do you think is going on there, you know, in terms of we had this sort of whole idea of VHL, but now you're saying these drugs work, you know, without VHL. What's going on there? Well, I mean, when you back up to where Avastin was approved, which was certainly not in kidney cancer, the angiogenesis appears to be important in many solid tumors. So even though we think that clear cell renal cell is driven by VHL's absence, the fact that then there's elevations in hypoxia factors, and so there's a tremendous stimulus to make new blood vessels, most tumors are making new blood vessels. So there still may well be an anti-angiogenesis impact on non-clear cell renal cell. 
And I don't know that the non-clear cell tumors are less vascular, but they probably are. But at any rate, I think there is still an angiogenesis component. But we know that these drugs have multiple other targets. And, you know, if you think back about some of the older oncology drugs, you know, even the hormonal therapies, every time we find a new mechanism for a new drug, we go back and see, oh, yes, that drug has some impact on that pathway as well. So I think it's just our limited knowledge of what these drugs do that makes it hard to explain how they're working in this other subgroup of patients. But I'm sure that there are both anti-angiogenesis and probably numerous other pathways that are being impacted. Now, the other trial that you mentioned was the study presented at ASCO looking at interferon and bevacizumab. Can you talk about the background to that study in terms of what had been done before and what exactly they looked at? This was interferon versus interferon plus bevacizumab, and it was placebo-controlled. The European study was placebo-controlled. And, you know, I think the background was that interferon is the most widely used drug for renal cell in Europe, and bevacizumab was shown at the NCI to have major growth inhibitory effects in renal cell in a phase two study, such that patients had some tumor shrinkage, mostly not 50% shrinkage, but stabilization for months to years. And there were people on that study that were out two years with no progression of disease that had been progressing. So the idea was that an immunotherapy, and actually interferon has some anti-angiogenesis effects as well, usually at very low dose, but nevertheless, that's been demonstrated for years on both you know, hemangiomas, but also on tumor neode vascularization. So it was thought that there might be a synergy in terms of anti-angiogenesis effect or just a typical oncology, let's combine two drugs that have activity in this disease and see what happens. So that was the rationale. And the complicated part of that study and our own United States study is that we did not have a bevacizumab alone arm. So nobody can really tell how much is the combination and how much would be bevacizumab alone. But the fact of the matter is there was a major improvement in response, not just in progression-free survival or overall survival, but actually there was a response rate of almost 30% by investigator assessment, which is not typical of interferon and was not typical of bevacizumab alone. So I think the thought is that there, in fact, may be some synergy here that we're going to have to address are there trials out there, phase three trials out there right now looking at bevacizumab alone? No. That seems kind of strange given the fact that it looked pretty effective when it was looked at in the phase two setting. I agree with you. And I would say the transition from the immunotherapy studies to the new targeted therapy studies, the major difference in thought process has been the acceptance of progression-free survival as a legitimate endpoint. You know, previously everybody wanted responses. And in renal cell, those of us that have dealt with this disease for a long time, we say to people, stable is good. You know, if it stops growing, that's an impact on the disease. But, you know, people that treat colon cancer, breast cancer, other malignancies don't accept that as an endpoint. And I think even, you know, oncologists in practice are looking for that response. And what we've been able to do with immunotherapy in these people, even in people that don't get, you know, the IL-2 complete response or interferon partial response, we've been able to slow down the disease process. And once the targeted therapies came out, that was accepted as an endpoint. So I think initially that Avastin or Bevacizumab NCI trial wasn't really thought to be meaningful 
even though to the renal cell docs it was meaningful, but to people designing studies, I don't know that they really bought it. What's going on right now in terms of the next generation of studies in renal cell? What are some of the strategies that are being looked at? Well, there's been an interest for several years that has been stymied by technical difficulties of combining targeted therapies. And as you know, the combination of an anti-VEGF and an anti-EGF drug in renal cell was not additive or synergistic. It didn't matter. And you're talking about the bevorlotinib? Correct. So now people are saying, well, maybe vertical inhibition, let's block the entire VEGF pathway with the anti-VEGF antibody outside of the cell and then one of the small molecule inhibitors inside of the cell. And so that type of combined therapy is being studied in an ongoing fashion. And there's a national study that's a randomized phase two led by ECOG, which is bevacizumab versus bevacizumab serafinib combination versus serafinib temsorolimus combination versus bevacizumab temsorolimus. And the difficulty in getting that study up and running has been to find a safe phase two dose level for the combination. These drugs have been much harder to combine than we expected they would be. What are some of the specific problems that are being seen when these drugs are combined? Exacerbation of one or the other's toxicity. For example, with serafinib and bevacizumab, there was a marked increase in hand-foot reaction such that the doses had to be markedly reduced. And then, in fact, the schedule that's been adopted is not a continuous schedule. It's five days a week of serafinib along with bevacizumab. And I don't recall the doses off the top of my head, but there was some dose reduction as well. So, you know, I think we're going to learn a lot from these studies in terms of both safety and whether that additive effect is really a major impact on anti-tumor Effect. I mean, some of us are thinking maybe sequential is still going to be the way to go, but that hasn't been studied formally. It's been studied sort of as anecdotes. The only formal study of sequential is actually with axitinib, which is not yet approved, where patients that had had progression after serafinib and serafinib and possibly sunitinib, but they had to have had serafinib got exitinib, and there were clearly major responses and durable responses in that setting, and that was studied formally and presented at ASCO. What exactly is exitinib? Exitinib is another, it's really cousin of, sutan, cousin of sunitinib, cousin of serafinib. It's another small molecule inhibitor that targets the VEGF receptor inside the cell. Very similar. It's actually more specific for the three VEGF receptors than either of the other two drugs. Now, this ECOG study is going to be in the first-line setting and randomized phase three? Randomized phase two, and in the first-line setting, yes. That's really exciting. Is there going to be a crossover to the drugs that they don't receive? Not formally, but probably, practically speaking. (laughs) Practically, yeah, but it's really progression-free survival that they're focused on. Correct. If they can come up with a safe way to do this, any predictions about what we're going to see in terms of efficacy? Well, in the initial phase one, the only study that I'm very familiar with in terms of phase one was combining serafinib with bevacizumab, and they did see a marked increase in progression-free and some response. You know, we say that about 80% of people have some tumor shrinkage with a single agent, and it was close to 100% of people had something out of the combination. 
That's interesting. Right now, can you talk a little bit about how you make decisions in the first line metastatic setting for clear cell and how you progress there in terms of second and third line therapy? What are the specific factors you take into consideration in these decisions? As you know, we get a lot of referrals for renal cell, although less so since people have been using the targeted therapies. But we still administer high-dose interleukin-2. And I still put that on the first-line plate for patients that you know seem to be the people who, in fact, are likely to respond. But also, with the cytokine working group, we are conducting a study of all comers that are eligible for high-dose interleukin-2. It's called SELECT, and we are looking at a number of pathology factors, immunohistochemistry, molecular, and immunological factors to try to predict prospectively and correlate with clinical outcome who are the people that respond to immunotherapy. Based on some of the CA9 data from UCLA and also from the Harvard system, Beth Israel, where CA9 seemed to be a predictor of response to IL-2, we're not using it to select patients yet. We're just treating everybody and then looking at all of these factors and hoping that we can identify people and then enrich the pool of people who would really benefit from that drug. Because as you know, there are some patients that have multiple year complete responses. So in terms of my own approach, I screen people for high-dose IL-2. I present it to them. We talk about that treatment. We talk about the targeted therapy. If I have a study open, I would rather put people on a clinical trial if it's at all possible. And you know, go from there with first line. If somebody's got a problem that really needs tumor shrinkage right away, for example, an endobronchial tumor that's causing atelectasis or collapse, that person would probably do better with sunitinib because it's got a shrinkage rate that's higher than anybody else. And we just don't have a lot of information yet for first line temsorolimus, although, you know, certainly the poor risk patients, that would be a good choice. But, you know, that's just creeping into the clinic now, I would say. Now, getting back to IL-2, you know, what I hear is that this is considered in, you know, younger patients in good condition, et cetera. Is that the way it plays out in your practice, or is it a wider net? It's not an age-based net. It's a physiology-based net. I mean, my bias is that people that have lung-only disease and have good pulmonary and cardiac function have the best chance of responding, and so those are the people I tend to you know, really try to encourage to do it. But I'm treating people into their late 60s, early 70s, mainly with fairly limited disease, but metastatic disease, of course. Now, when you treat these patients, what are the side effects and toxicities? They haven't really changed. I would say that over the last 20 years of using it, we're giving a lot less drug, but still seeing the same level of response. But, you know, they almost all become hypotensive, oliguric, rising creatinine, those are the main things. Skin toxicity with rash and then itching. Some have GI toxicity, some eat their way through the week. But it's mostly the warm shock kind of effect. But, you know, we've been doing this so long that it's so predictable. And we rarely have toxicities that require major intervention, such as an arrhythmia or neurotoxicity. And certainly we haven't had anybody have any permanent damage to any organ system. When a patient says to you, you know, what's my quality of life going to be sort of globally? You know, am I going to be out of work and for how long? And what's it going to be like? What do you say? 
With interleukin-2, they're generally, it's a two-week treatment with a week in between and then a week following the second week to recover, so at least a month out of your life. And some people, it takes another, you know, a couple of weeks or a month to get really feeling strong enough. I would say by the end of the four weeks, they're at about 60%, maybe 70%, and by another week, they're at 85 to 90%. And then they feel well. You know, I mean, in general, they feel well. I mean, I won't treat somebody who's got rapidly growing disease because I don't think immunotherapy will capture them. I think those people need targeted therapy to stop the disease. But if they've got slow-growing, indolent, you know, the typical renal cell, then I think IL-2 is worth a try. You mentioned the question of whether or not there may be some anti-angiogenic mechanisms involved. What's your current understanding about how immunotherapy works? Oh, that's a big question. You know, I mean, we don't really know. Our assumption with interleukin-2 is that it's activation of killer cells that then go after the tumor. There are others that think it's really the capillary leak itself that's part of the damaging to the tumor that allows other things to get into the cells and kill them. With interferon, it's, you know, that drug does more things in the body than we can even name. It has certainly anti-proliferative effects. It has anti-angiogenesis effects. It has immune activation effects, whether it's mechanism of tumor kill is immunotherapy or whether it's all these other properties in solid tumors, it's very hard to say. Certainly in hematologic malignancies, it's an antiproliferative drug. Now, getting back to the issue of bevacizumab, sort of putting aside the cost and reimbursement issues and FDA approval, et cetera, but just strictly looking at sort of the clinical science and the risks and benefits right now, where do you think bevacizumab with interferon potentially would fit in in terms of the algorithm? And would there be a role, you think, of bevacizumab alone? Well, we are using it in patients. I think we're using it down the line, although I do have people that were on the original study still that are doing well. In terms of treatment, right now, because it's not approved, it depends on whether people will you know, go through the hoops of trying to get it for a patient. Certainly, if you write letters, you can get it for somebody if they've had everything else. And I've seen it work in that setting. So again, alone or with interferon, are you using it? So far, we've been using it alone. And so you're seeing objective responses or stable disease? or Stable disease. Let's talk a little bit about the patient who's not going to receive IL-2 and how you decide between the various first-line systemic alternatives. Well, that's complicated. I mean, it's not complicated. I think it's just that we've had a lot of experience with all of them. I think if people are familiar with one or the other, they should go with the one they're the most familiar with. Because what I'm hearing from people in the community is that these drugs are hard for them to use, and if there's toxicity, they just stop them. And what we found, we had about 80 people on expanded access in addition to the Phase three trials. And the first month of treatment with either serafinib or sunitinib is a lot of work because people have rash and people get hand foot and they have hypertension and some don't even start the diarrhea right away. So then you have to manage the symptoms, adjust the doses, and just fiddle around for a month. So, And then you can keep going at a dose that's manageable and even dose escalate back. And I urge people not to bail out just with some early toxicity. But in terms of choosing between them or choosing Toracel... You know, I think I like, if it's not in a study setting, I like the community would probably start with Sutent, mainly because it has less hand foot. But if somebody gets tremendous fatigue, I switch immediately to Serafinib. And where does Turisol come in? 
Well, Taurus cell right now, I'm using it in the poor risk patients and the non-clear cell up front, but we have about 10 people that have been treated. So how do you approach patients in the second line setting? Well, if they've had a cytokine, it's obviously going to be one of the targeted therapies. I will give you an example of a patient that I would put on Taurus cell as their second line. It's a gentleman that's had also renal cell for numerous years, had about a 20-year break between his kidney and then recurrent disease. And then he got IL-2 and responded and was doing well for a long time and then started to slowly grow. But then he developed symptoms. He developed anemia and some night sweats. And so he was looking like one of these bad actors. So we put him on Toracel. He's had a major benefit from it in terms of his anemia, his well-being. He's doing things. But he also is very intelligent and had researched all the drugs. And he said, you know, I like to golf. And I can't golf if I have hand-foot syndrome. So I want the drug that has the least toxicity. And, you know, in fact, it's probably temsorolimus in terms of being able to continue to do things. I mean, there is fatigue. It is weakly intravenous, so it's inconvenient in that respect. But it doesn't have the hypertension problems, and it doesn't have as much rash or hand foot as the other two drugs. Assuming we could get more data on Bev alone, how do you think that would play out in terms of side effects and toxicity compared to the other alternatives? Well, its only toxicities are really hypertension and proteinuria that's pretty insignificant in terms of clinical outcome. And, of course, it's a drug that most oncologists are already familiar with in terms of using it with other tumors. So I think in that respect, it's the easiest to use with the least amount of side effects, but, again, the least single-agent long-term data. Anything that we've learned over the last year or so in terms of side effects and toxicity of these drugs, any new stuff out? Well, there's a a young physician at Northwestern who's a dermatologist who has taken on a tremendous interest in hand-foot syndrome. You know, what is it? What do you do about it? How do you prevent it? And he's actually put together a group of both dermatologists and oncologists. I actually participated in a symposium with him. There was a dermatologist from France. There were a couple from Germany. There were a couple from the U.S., and everybody's trying to figure out how to prevent this or manage it up front before it becomes too bad. And I think that with that approach, he's going to put together a consensus paper. If we can get that out to the community, I think that would greatly ease the anxiety of starting either serafinib or sunitinib, because that's the thing that bothers the patients the most, I think, in terms of daily life. And it really can be managed and sort of headed off at the past before it gets to be severe. And there are also dermatopathologists involved in this, so that the research that these people are doing, I think, is going to be very useful for clinical management. I think you're talking about Mario Lacouture, and he actually has been a guest on this series. Really an incredible initiative that he's doing. From a practical perspective, how do you in your own practice, what are some of the pearls or the ways that you approach this situation? For hypertension, everybody has to take their blood pressure at least once a week, and most people that are hypertensive take it almost every day. So that we have covered. But with the rash in the hand foot, we recommend urea-based creams. We tell people to get soft-soled shoes, you know, get some heavy socks or gel insoles to cushion their feet, because it seems that these things are at pressure points. Whatever is happening happens at pressure points. There's some thought that maybe, you know, at pressure points, there's some subclinical trauma when you're using your hands and your feet. And so then it's wound healing that is being affected. And that's why you get the blisters and 
you know, we don't know for sure, but those were some of the things that were being tossed around as ideas. So, you know, telling people to avoid activities, for example, treadmill or things that do put a lot of pressure on hands and feet. They've even been some people that have developed blackberry thumbs from it while they're taking these drugs. So, you know, really lifestyle changes to try to minimize the amount of trauma to hands and feet seems to be important. And then the various creams, I don't think the dermatologists could come up with a cream regimen that they preferred. Each one had their own sort of ideas. So I think that tells you that we don't have the one best cream. But we've been using the urea-based because they seem to get into that thick callus. And also, if people already have heavy calluses, we urge them to get those removed by a podiatrist before they start the drug. What about looking at different doses and particularly escalating the dose of these agents or changing the schedules? Okay, so sunitinib's original schedule is 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. And I would say that that is probably the max dose. I had a couple of patients who insisted on trying to go straight through, but that lasted about two months, and they just couldn't. They needed the break. So I think that is probably its max dose. People have looked at that drug at 37.5, either four weeks on, two weeks off, or continuously. It doesn't seem to be as active when you start at the lower dose. Many people at 50 have to go down to a lower dose later on, but if that's the case, it's usually because they've responded and they're just wearing out because, again, these drugs are given you know chronically until progression, and so there is a point at which the drug is over the edge, kind of. So some people will take 50, four weeks on, two weeks off for, you know, maybe three, four months, and then we have to go down on the dose because they're just, they're either so fatigued that they can't do it or they have to stop at three weeks instead of four weeks. It depends. Each month seems to have a different toxicity that becomes rate limiting. And in terms of serafinib, there's some thought that the 400 twice a day is actually lower than the most effective dose. So there is an ongoing clinical trial trying to dose escalate based on the data from Baylor where each month the dose went up if a person was tolerating it to a max of 800 twice a day and then staying on that as long as possible. What were your thoughts on that study? Actually, the, Dr. D'Amato is doing the same issue as you are for this series, but I'm curious what you thought about that data. I was kind of surprised by it, the serafinib dose escalation. Well, you know, I think that our sense is that, you know, it's Olympic athletes that get to Houston. And I can't see very many of my patients actually being able to do that physically, because I think we have older patients, they're not going to go get on an airplane and run halfway across the country. So I do think there's a selection process here that perhaps made it tolerable. But there is an ongoing study by a community oncology group that has a big research network, and they are going to look at that as a clinical trial in the community setting. And I think that will be very useful to look at the practicality of doing this. Where are we right now with adjuvant therapy, renal cell, both on study and off? Well, I hope not off study, frankly. Adjuvant therapy so far in renal cell has not been something that seems to be useful in terms of interferon or interleukin-2. The studies have all been negative, and there have been randomized studies. The current studies that are ongoing, one is sponsored by Wilex, which is with an antibody to G250, which is the cell surface marker for CA9. And that has had some therapeutic studies that have been suggestive of benefit, although 
not striking, but it clearly binds to renal cells. So that study is ongoing, and that's multi-center, multinational. And then the two other adjuvant studies, one in Britain and one in the U.S., the U.S. study is serafinib versus placebo and sunitinib versus placebo in one study. So the two drugs are not being compared to each other, but they're being compared to the placebo control. And I think that's where we are in the adjuvant setting. I think these drugs are to be given for a year in people with a reasonably high, not hugely high, but reasonably high risk of recurrence all the way up to people with a very high risk. And I think we'll see whether there's an impact. The reason I say not off study is that, again, we don't have any data that adjuvant works yet. And these drugs are not benign. I mean, certainly in the metastatic setting, you're going to use these drugs. But in the adjuvant setting, I mean, these drugs have acute toxicities and potentially long-term toxicities because of the inhibition of neovascularization in other organs, perhaps. Have you yourself had patients on that study? Yes, I have. When you've had patients on that study, of course, theoretically, you don't know whether they're getting a placebo or not, although I have a feeling you probably can tell clinically. What's it like to try to get somebody out to a year? Well, we only have a handful of people, actually. And one is a physician, and he is highly motivated and will put up with anything. And he has a little bit of pressure points, you know, sloughing. So I do think he's getting something, although it's not too bad. The other patient that are active right this minute is local and not terribly sophisticated and really unhappy about the rash. And I mean, she's taking a lot of nursing time to keep her going. And I would bet she won't stay on a year. Getting back to the off protocol situation in the first line metastatic setting, you said that the most common thing that you do outside of a study is use sunitinib. What's your usual strategy next, second line? Well, if it's not IL-2 and I go to a targeted therapy, I would use sunitinib. I think I would either at this point go to serafinib or to either Avastin or Temsorolimus. Or it depends, you know. There are anecdotes, and I have some of my own, of people who have been on sunitinib who progress explosively. I have plenty of people who don't, but there are people who do. And some of those people I actually would give chemotherapy to because I'm worried that they're growing so fast I won't even be able to catch them with a targeted therapy. And we don't really understand what that is unless it means that other pathways beyond VEGF are the ones that are triggering the tumor to grow. So these are things, again, that we don't understand about these drugs. I've also seen a few people who had to come off of it because they had toxicity. We had a fellow that developed C. diff colitis that was terrible, and he'd had diarrhea with sunitinib, so we just stopped it. And he's been stable for like six months after stopping. So, you know, we're not doing anything right now. And I've seen a couple of other people that were like that. So I think you have to put it back into the context of what renal cell does before jumping into these drugs or jumping in even to the second drug. When you talked about patients with explosive disease where you use chemo, what kind of chemo? We've been using either gemcitabine alone or a combination of gemzar and adriamycin, which we used in sarcomatoid renal cell and published actually in cancer in October 2004. We've subsequently taken that regimen into sarcomatoid renal cell and ECOG, and it appears to be holding up in terms of response rate and progression-free survival. We have a couple of people that we treated well, I guess more than four or five years ago, that are still complete responders 
who had sarcomatoid renal cell, which was galloping when they started. But, you know, it's a handful of people. But I've tried gemcitabine in non-sarcomatoid patients, and if they're growing fast, it sometimes really controls the disease for a while. What are some of the new agents that are being looked at in renal cell? I know some of them. I think there are probably plenty more that I don't know about, but I know that there is an antisense to AKT, which is an enzyme that's upstream from TOR, mTOR. Now, that'll probably hit many of the same pathways, but we just don't know. There's a new immunotherapy, not so new, but interleukin-21 that's been used alone that's being studied in combination with serafinib. And then there are some other small molecule antiangiogenesis drugs that are still with numbers that are being looked at in combination, again, with either interferon or serafinib. Are there any patients in your practice that you could sort of present as examples of how you go about evaluating patients with renal cell, you know, without using their names or identifying information, or maybe somebody that you've seen recently where you had to make a decision that you think would be you know, instructive from an educational point of view? All right. Here's a patient that I've been following for maybe seven years, a 70-something-year-old man who had very small bilateral lung nodules and really didn't want to take immunotherapy, and at the time wasn't eligible for a study because the nodules were less than a centimeter and everything had to be measurable. So we just watched him. He had a prior primary removed? Prior primary removed. Did you biopsy the lung lesions? Yes, he'd had a biopsy. It was renal cells. He was just being watched. And Every time we'd see a scan, well, maybe once a year scan, we, he got scans at intervals, but you couldn't really see a change except if you looked back at a year ago. And there'd be like an onion ring of tumor growth around each nodule or around a few nodules, but no new nodules and nothing still as centimeter. So this was going on for probably five years. And then between April of 07 and August, when we got the next scan or maybe... June and November, things got a lot bigger, and there were more, and it really looked like he needed to start treatment. I guess it was later in the year than that, but at any rate, he needed to start treatment, and we were discussing what to do, and then he was having some vision problems, and lo and behold, he had brain mets. So we had to deal with that first, and he had stereotactic radiation. He had every complication known to man from steroids, and then he developed thrush, and he had complications from diflucan, believe it or not, and then something else. And bottom line was he couldn't get started on anything for a couple of months, and he was actually starting to feel really bad. And I was not going to give him an oral agent because I thought he would have side effects with those, but we ended up giving him sunitinib because we could start it right away. And he has had a major response to it without complications. That was really fascinating, because I was really frightened of treating him, to be honest with you. How long has he been on the sinitinib at this point? Just a month. One month, and he's already had a response. He's already had a response in terms of his clinical feelings. I don't have a scan, but he's clinically, he was coughing, he was feeling short of breath, his stamina is better, he's able to do the treadmill, he's feeling better. What's his life situation? Does he have a spouse? Is he working? He has a spouse and a son, they have a family business they made the decision after we said, you know, we're going to have to start on treatment to sell their business. So that's been a major stress in his life. And yeah, the family is incredibly supportive. 
What was it like during those five years when he wasn't on treatment? He was perfectly happy to not see me and to know that he was okay for another three or four months between scans. It must have been an interesting experience for him. I know, you know, this comes up all the time, prostate cancer, they want to stop treatment, and the question of, you know, how patients feel about not receiving therapy. How was he with it? He, in particular, was fine. I know exactly what you're saying because there are other people where, you know, now I might see somebody with small lung nodules and what I'd have to say to them is, look, if it were me, I mean, I'm giving you advice. I would either do high-dose interleukin-2 because it's a fixed, finite treatment, or if you don't really want to do that because you're worried about the toxicity, I would get another scan before starting treatment because if you're stable on your own, giving you a drug that will make you stable plus toxicity is not worth it. And some people buy that, and some people absolutely can't tolerate not doing something. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could try to figure out why it is that he stayed stable for five years and all of a sudden the tumor took off? Any hypotheses? You know, one more mutation, a different pathway takes over. I don't have any idea why that happens, but we see it all the time. Anything happened differently with him at that point? Was anything different in his general health or lifestyle? Everything was the same and then the tumor just took off. Yeah, as far as I can tell, that was it. There were no new medical problems. I think the other question that's coming up more and more is what to do about the primary tumor in the setting of concurrent metastatic disease, whether a nephrectomy is still indicated. And in general, I say yes, if they're not galloping outside of the kidney, if the disease isn't massive or if it's not growing fast, I say take the time to do the nephrectomy because the kidney in place is going to cause trouble at some point. It's going to cause pain or it's going to bleed or whatever. But there are people where there's more disease outside of the kidney than even inside. So then those people, you have to start something. Is there any role for a trial of systemic therapy in a patient like that, you know, maybe before you send the patient for surgery? Well, that's been done in the setting of, well, I don't know if it's been in non-metastatic disease, but there was a neoadjuvant, there were two neoadjuvant studies, one at MD Anderson and one at Beth Israel, where they were giving, I think, targeted therapy, either Sutent or Serafinib, prior to surgery to see what the effect was on the primary tumor. And I think the problem was, again, that with the antiangiogenesis approach, wound healing is an issue. And so you can see clearly some effect on the primary tumor from these drugs, just radiographically. All of these show, and even the metastatic tumors, will show a central necrosis that increases with just a small rim of tumor. So you might see, you know, if it's a lobulated primary, you'll see some increase in the amount of necrosis that exists. 